All right, if you go ahead and stand and turn to Psalm chapter 77, if you would please. Psalm chapter 77. Sure thankful for the opportunity to preach. Sure appreciate our pastor and the liberty that he gives in doing so. He said that the meeting was going well and he appreciated the prayers of God's people. Every time that uh, we as men uh, get to preach, um, I, I find myself appreciating our pastor more and more. And you may leave tonight saying, I appreciate our pastor more and more. <laughs> but uh, we, are, we are blessed. And I've said this many, many, many times. God has gifted Southwest Baptist Church with Pastor Jason Gaddis. And I'm thankful, very thankful. I'm so thankful. All because of God. Yep. Psalm chapter 77, if you would, begin in verse number one this evening. The psalmist said, I cried unto God with my voice, even unto God with my voice, and he gave ear unto me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My sore ran into the night and ceased not. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. Thou holdest mine eyes waking, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old and the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Then he asked a series of questions. Will the Lord cast off forever? And will he be favorable no more? Is his mercy clean gone forever? Doth his promise fail forevermore? Hath God forgotten to be gracious? Hath he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. And I said, this is my infirmity. But I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. The waters saw thee, O God, the waters saw thee, they were afraid. The depths also were troubled. The clouds poured out water, the sky sent out a sound, thine arrows also went abroad. The voice of thy thunder was in the heaven, and the lightnings lightened the world. The earth trembled and shook. We know a little bit about that. Thy way is in the sea, and thy path in the great waters, and thy footsteps are not known. Thou ledest thy people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. I preach to you a message tonight entitled... When life is not your friend. When life is not your friend. 
Subtitle would be this. When God gives you more than you can handle. When God gives you more than you can handle. What do you do? What do you do when God gives you more than you can handle? You say, Brother David, I, I thought preachers always said God will never give you more than you can handle. Well, if that were the case, we wouldn't need God. But there are times that God gives us more than what we can handle. So, Father, tonight as we have gathered on a Wednesday night and it's so good and so refreshing and so wonderful to meet with God's people and to open up your word, to hear a song sung about your faithfulness and how precious of a thought that that is, that God is faithful to me. He's faithful to us and you're faithful to thy creation. And God, we just want to say tonight, thank you for being God. Thank you that you're always the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Thank you, Father, that no one can change you. Thank you that the circumstances of life do not thwart your plans and your purposes for mankind. Thank you, Father, that we can pray and we can seek your face, and you do hear, as the psalmist said, you give ear. Thank you for loving us. And Father, may we leave tonight in a different way than what we came. And may we have a greater appreciation for our God. And may we love you in a better way. And may we learn something about you tonight, perhaps, Father, that we may not have seen before, may not have understood before. Or maybe, God, we just need to rehearse it once again and be reminded so, Father, thank you for being God. We love you. And, Father, we're thankful that you first loved us. And we'll give you praise and we'll give you thanks. In Christ's wonderful name, amen. I have a steel 94R trimmer hedger. I love it. I use it every week. So far, it's handled everything that I've put it up to. It starts right up. It's aggressive. Has good fuel economy. No, it's not electric. It's gas. It handles 0.105 inch trimmer line. No, no, not the stuff you get at Walmart. This is the big stuff. It has an ergonomic handle, if you know what that is. It's fully adjustable. High-tech polymer housing has a throttle trigger lock built in the USA. It's got a 24.1 cc engine and it has a cutting swath of 16 and a half inches. Oh, yeah. <laughs> My dad had a steel weed eater. 
when I was in the fourth grade. It didn't start right up. It was not very aggressive. The handle was not ergonomic, nor was it padded. There was no foam grips. It was just metal on flesh. It wasn't adjustable. It certainly did not have a 24.1 cc engine. And it certainly didn't cut 16 and a half inches. In fact, there was nothing attractive about it at all. It literally was a beefed up pair of scissors. <laughs> I went online today and thought, I'm going to see if I can find that thing online. And there it was. And I shook <laughs> and I trembled. And I thought, thank God for my steel 94R trimmer. We lived on about an acre of land. My job was to make it look nice. I was to weed eat the trees and around the shrubs and chain link fences that we had. I was to weed eat around the garden. I think our garden was something like five acres. It seemed like it was at the time. Not to mention weeding the garden on top of that. So I was kind of like the weed-eating czar around the house. And so I would take the scissors, if you would, literally that's what they were. You can look them up online, that they were shears, but literally two big pieces of iron put together with a bolt and basically took your hand and you squeezed and you went around on your hands and your knees and that's how you weed-eated the property. Not to mention the weeds, the sticker burrs, honey locust trees. Don't know if you've ever met, met, met those things before, but they have, they have a, a ball of thorns. Some of those thorns, six, eight inches long, and they're just balled up and they will fall out of the tree and you'll be doing your thing and you're going around and before you know it, you've got one stuck in your foot, you've got one stuck in your knee. Honey locust trees, I hate them. And if I didn't get chiggers or poison ivy or blisters or stuck in the foot or knee with the thorns that came out of the honey locust tree, by the time I finished our compound, I started all over again. Didn't get fed, didn't get to go to bed, didn't get to do anything. I just seemed like I started and started back over again. That seemed how life was. And on not a few occasions, I thought to myself, my father is literally trying to kill me. My dad hates me. He's torturing me. I'm of all men most miserable. And I thought, what did I do to my dad? I'm just, I, was, I was born. I came into his home and then all of a sudden here I am and I'm despaired of life. I wish I'd have never been born. I, I felt like Job. And the thing which I feared has come upon me. And I said with Jacob, all these are against me. I can't even go fishing in the pond that was right in my eyesight. I mean, there were fish in the pond. I couldn't even go fishing. Everyone else is riding around on their bikes or playing in the barn. My sister was eating blackberries and, and dad didn't even stay there and help me. No, I was left there all alone on my hands and knees. Never brought me bottled water, never brought me Gatorade. Nope. And I felt like I was forsaken, alone. Life has a way of 
turning its back on us, doesn't it? You know, as a, as a fourth in fourth grade, I felt like I felt like life had turned its back on me. I couldn't do anything but what was set in front of me. Life has a way of slapping us in the face sometimes. So that distress and anguish flood our soul. We become overwhelmed personally, corporately and even nationally. I think that we would understand that. But I think none is so devastating as when we are despaired individually, when we feel all alone. None of us are exempt from despondency, a loss of courage or a loss of hope. And life has a way of raising questions in our life, which oftentimes go unanswered. Life has a way of tempting us to question the very foundation of things, doesn't it? And here's our dilemma. We know God hears. I mean, God is, God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. We know that he hears. We know that God sees. I mean, God is omnipresent. He's, he's everywhere at all times. We know that God responds. We know that God is capable because God is omnipotent. We know our God has promised to hear us. But to ask and not to receive to seek and not to find, to knock and to see no open door. These are serious trials to the heart. These even, these even shake the foundation of our, of our faith many times. They're a threat to our faith. And in our passage here, the psalmist could not trace the ways of God. We don't know necessarily what the psalmist was dealing with here. It could have been a bodily, physical ailment. It could have been a, a societal ailment. It could have been a national issue that he was dealing with. The Bible doesn't really say. All we know is that the psalmist was despaired of life and he couldn't trace the hand and the ways of God. And thus it left him despondent and discouraged, defeated and distressed. An unanswered prayer is very staggering even to the strongest of faiths. And the psalmist here feels abandoned because God has not done for him what he feels like God should do. And he feels all alone because of what God could do. He knew, he knew God could do these things. And he knew that God had worked in the past. And so what do you do when you can't trace God's way? What do you do when you, and how do you respond when God does not reply? How do you act when God gives you more than you can handle? Well, I can tell you, first of all, how not to respond. I think all of us, if we're honest tonight, all of us have been guilty at times of of, of responding in an un, improper way towards life and towards God. I think that every one of us would say, yep, been there, <laughs> not responded right to God, not responded right to life, not responded right to the circumstances of life. Been there, done that. I understand that, Brother David. And we have this, uh, we, we, we can respond with a defeated destiny. Am I always to suffer? Am I always going to deal with this cancer? Am I always going to struggle with this, this besetting thing in my life? Will life always be this way? We ask questions like this. Will the, will, will the Lord never relieve me? Is there any end in sight? Is there no hope? Will God ever come through for me? And we can have a defeated destiny. 
We can respond with stubbornness and unwillingness. The psalmist here in our passage, he says this in verse number two, in the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord, my sore ran into the night and ceased not. And then notice these words. He says, he says, my soul refused to be comforted. In other words, he came to the place in his life where he chose to be miserable. In other words, he, he didn't want to get over it. He didn't want to go beyond. He, he did not want to get through this. And in fact, I would say it this way, for some, misery is their best friend. They're comfortable with it. They've been that way for many, many, many years. And, and if they don't have something to be miserable about, they get very uncomfortable. <laughs> I know that's ironic that we would say it that way, but, but that's the way that it is. And people, listen to people are oftentimes their worst tormentors. Talking about yourself. We often torment ourselves more than anybody else would torment us. And there is, a, there is a sense of stubbornness and unwillingness in our life. We find in verse number three that the psalmist was without delight in God. Look, look there with me. He says, I remembered God. But then notice what follows that. He says, I remembered God and was troubled. Now that doesn't make sense to us. We, we, would, we would think that the psalmist would say something like this. I remembered God and was encouraged. And, and I remembered God and I was full of joy. And I remembered God and I got, I got out of my funk here. No, no. We find here that the psalmist says this. I remembered God and I was troubled. Doesn't even make sense, does it? The word trouble there has to be, is defined this way, to be in a great commotion or tumult. It's to be enraged to war, to moan, to be an uproar. In other words, when he thought about God and he thought about his situation, I mean, here was God, here was the psalmist, and here was his situation. He thought, why doesn't God fix this? Why isn't God listening? Why isn't God responding? Why hasn't God done anything? And he cried out to God. I mean, literally the word there is that he, that he shrieked out to God. In other words, it was, it was a cry of desperation. It was a cry of, of fear. It was a cry of, of anxiety, we may say. And then the Bible says that he complained. The word complain there simply means this, to ponder, to think about, to muse, to to converse with himself, to talk despairingly, to meditate, to consider. It, it is used of uh, a psalm. In, uh, in fact, uh, the very psalmist here is Asaph. Asaph would have been the chief musician under David. He was a very, very significant man, very, very important man. And, and we find here that, that here's a man that he, and he uses this word that he complained. And, and the word complained, it would be similar to this, to sing a song. So you would sing a verse and then have a chorus and sing a verse and have a chorus, sing a verse and have a chorus. And that, that's what he was doing. He was going back and forth and back and forth. The verb conveys the idea of going over and over and over a matter in one's mind, rehearsing it. In fact, the word commune in verse number six, the word complain in verse number three, and the word talk in verse number 12 are all the same words in the Hebrew. And thus he became overwhelmed. He was to the point of hiding himself. In verse number three, he said it this way, I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed to the point where the psalmist made God his enemy. 
God had become the source of his blame. In verse number four, he says it this way, thou holdest mine eyes waking. In other words, he, he literally is saying this. He's saying, he's saying to God, God, because of my situation, God, because of my, my troubles and my difficulties and my problems, it's like, God, you're holding my eyelids open at night. I can't even go to sleep. Literally, that's what he was saying. God, I want to sleep and I want some repose and I want some rest from, from my circumstances and I want to be able to, to find some source of peace and satisfaction here. But God, it's literally like this. It's like you're holding my eyes open to where I can't even sleep. You ever felt that way? Try to go to sleep at night and because of a problem or a difficulty or a circumstance or, or a final that's coming tomorrow and you can't sleep? God is holding my eyes wide open. I can't sleep. God, you won't even let me escape this. I can't even get any rest. I'm so troubled and so weary that I don't even, I don't even know what to say. In other words, he goes on in, in, uh, in, verse number, in verse number four, thou holdest mine eyes waking. I'm so troubled that I cannot even speak. In other words, it's like, it's like he wants to say something to God, but it's like, oh, he's in a tizzy. He didn't even know how to describe his situation. And so the psalmist supposes himself to be mistreated of God. He says in verse number five this way, he says, I've considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. In other words, I've looked back into the annals of time. I've gone back and I've researched God. In other words, he's having this, this discussion with God. And, and it's almost like this. It's like, God, I, I, I've watched what you did with Job. And I watched what you did with, with Abraham. And I read in the Bible about this circumstance and that circumstance. And God, never in the past, never in the history of mankind, have you dealt with anybody the way that you're dealing with me. I'm all alone and forsaken. That's where he's at. Nobody's had it this bad. In fact, the psalmist says this in verse number six, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I, in other words, I used to be happy. I used to be enjoying life. I used to, I used to uh, enjoy life and, and, he, and it was almost like this. What happened? What happened? What happened to life? What happened to the joy in my heart? And the Bible says that he communed with himself with his own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. And we find here in verses 7 through 9 that he was controlled by doubt. And the psalmist asked some very pointed and very accusatory questions about God. It's almost like this. It's like he, he felt it necessary to unload like, I've got to get this off my chest. I, I'm going to feel better if I, can just, if I can just voice my opinions and voice my thoughts here. But the problem was this. There was no source of help and there was no comfort that came with that. Because listen, uh, us, us uh, unloading on God or unloading on somebody, you know what that's like. They're, they're, you just say, I've, got, I've just got to get this off. But listen, there's no help with that. You might feel good for a second. Oh, I got that off my chest, but then it's all of a sudden it's back to the same misery, back to the same struggle, back to the same problem again. And then there's no source of help and there's no source of comfort. And he finds no solace. But look down in verse number 10. It's very interesting that the psalmist goes from complaint to comfort. There, there's a transition here in verse number 10. The Bible says, and I said, this is my infirmity. 
It's, it's very interesting here that there's this pause. In other words, he, he, even the word Selah in verse number nine, that there's this pause, this break here. And, and the psalmist comes to the point in his life where, where, where he makes this, this decision here. He, he really does. He comes to a decision. He says, and I said, this is, this is my infirmity. In other words, um, as he's been having this discussion with himself and he's having this dialogue and, he, and he's going back and forth and back and forth and he comes to this decision and, and really there's two different thoughts here in two different ways and, and, and I think both of them have some validity to them but the one would be this, that unbelief is an infirmity. In other words, when I refuse to believe God or when I refuse to believe his word and when I refuse to act upon the promises of God, then that's an infirmity. In other words, that, that brings sickness to the soul. That brings weariness to the soul. When I refuse to accept that God has said, this is, this is my word and these are the truths and I, and I refuse that or I say, I'm not going to be comforted by that. I'm going to do what I want to do. There is a sense of infirmity that comes with that. But there's another thought that I believe would also coincide here that, that the psalmist was saying this. This is my appointed state in life right now. In other words, this is where God has me. Whatever, and again, we don't know what it was, but whatever was going on in his life, the psalmist came to this decision. God's in control. God knows. God's aware of my life right now. God is aware of my circumstances. And, and, and this is my infirmity. I, I can either choose to love God and continue to love God. I can continue to believe God and continue to accept his promises. I can continue to follow God and love God and grow. Or I can turn away from God in this circumstance. One man said it this way, those doubts and fears proceed from the want and the weakness of faith and the corruption of a distempered mind. In other words, a mind that, that is not uh, thinking correctly, a mind that is not acting correctly, a mind that is not processing things correctly, then doubts and fears and, and trouble and anguish come from a weakness of faith and trust in God. And it ushers no blessing and no hope and no satisfaction and no contentment. And it's almost like this, that the psalmist comes to this conclusion. Why would one not choose to be content if God is in fact in control? If this is the will of God and if this is the plan of God, why would I not choose to be content? And so the psalmist goes on and he says this in verse number 10, but I will remember the years of thy right hand of the Most High. Now, notice that he doesn't say the moments. Notice that he says the years of the Most High. In other words, over and over and over, God had been faithful. Over and over, God had been good. Over and over, God had been right. Over and over, God had been good in every single way. And so the psalmist basically comes to this and says, God has been working. And God was working before I came on the scene. And God was at work when, when my parents were here. And God was at work when my grandparents were here. And God was doing things before I ever came onto the scene. And so he, he remembered the years of the Most High. God had consistently shown himself mighty. The right hand, he, he mentions the right hand, the hand of power, the hand of the ability. In other words, God's right hand, the, the hand of power. He says, God, you, you, you are powerful. You are mighty. In fact, you are this. You are the most high, he says. Surely I will remember thy wonders of old. 
The word wonders there, it has, it has in it the idea of, of extraordinary aspects of God's character displayed on the behalf of his people. In fact, uh, 84 times in the Old Testament, this word is used, and 83 of those times it is used of God. His wonder working power. And he says, I will meditate also of all thy work. God is incomprehensible. God, more than I could even imagine how great that you are, I could never fully comprehend how wonderful and how mighty that you truly are. In other words, he, he began to think about God and he began to think about the character of God and, and the love of God and the, and the perfectness of God and everything that God was, he began to put his thoughts to and he began to meditate and he began to dwell upon God. I'm afraid that Christians today do far less meditation than we should. No, no, I'm not, I'm not talking about weird Eastern mysticism type stuff. I'm, I'm just talking about this, thinking about God. We think about a lot of things, don't we? We think about the weather and we think about uh, the price of gas and we think about COVID and we think about what's going to happen tomorrow. And we think about a final exam tomorrow and we think about what I'm doing this summer and where I'm going and new ministry and getting married. And, and all of these thoughts run through our mind and we're constantly thinking and, and we spend a lot of time meditating on a lot of stuff. But I'm, but I'm afraid that very little time is devoted to meditating upon God. In fact, I did a little study and and three times in the word of God, God commands us to study his word three times in the whole Bible. God commands us study the word of God. Thirteen times in the word of God, we are called upon to meditate. Another six times the word meditation is used. So 19 times meditate or meditation God has called us and said, meditate upon my words, meditate upon my law, meditate upon my precepts, give thought to my words, give thought to my, to my principles and my precepts. And, and three times the word of God has called us to study. I'm not saying we shouldn't read the word of God. Absolutely, we need to read the word of God. But we need to read it and do this. What is God saying to me? What does God want me to do with this? What, how am I supposed to live this out in my life this week? How is this supposed to affect my marriage? How is this supposed to affect my relationship with my brother in Christ? How is this to affect my desire for world missions? How is this to affect the, the ability to be used right here in my own community to win people to the Lord and to see people say, God, what, is, what are you saying to me? God, what am I supposed to do with this? And throughout the day, we ought to be meditating upon him, thinking upon his word and giving thought to his word. But I'm afraid that there's a lot of time devoted to worry and far too little time devoted to faith. Somebody says, well, Brother David, I, 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 it's all I've known is how to worry. That's all I know. My father worried and my mother worried and this person and that person. And that's how my family was. Listen, the only difference between worry and faith is this. Okay, this is real simple. The only difference between worry and faith is this. Worry is me placing faith in myself. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, so when I'm worrying, what am I doing? I'm thinking, well, if, if plan A doesn't work, then I am going to implement plan B. 
And if plan B doesn't work, then I'm going to implement plan C. And if plan C doesn't work, then I'm going to implement plan Z or whatever the case may be. And all the emphasis and worry is about what? How I can handle a situation, what I can do about a circumstance, what I can do with this matter, or how I can fix this person, or what I can do with that situation. Worry is faith in oneself. Faith, on the other hand, is exercising the same ability, but faith is trust in God. It's the same process. In other words, it's the same ability. You don't have to, listen, you don't have to learn. You don't have to be, you don't have to be uh, instructed on how to have faith in God or how, how to have trust in God because you're already doing that. You're trusting in yourself. God just wants you to take the faith and trust that you have in oneself and place it in him. So in other words, we already know how to do it. It's just that we refuse to do it. And we spend a lot of time worrying. We spend a lot of time fretting. We spend a lot of time meditating upon what we want to think about and what we want to give our thoughts to rather than upon God. Worry is simply the ability to meditate on the wrong things and teach us and instruct us in falsehood. I've heard one man say, and I've used this over and over again, you are the most influential person in your life. You know why? Because you talk to yourself more than anybody else. And you listen to yourself more than anybody else. And you trust yourself more than anybody else because you influence yourself more than anybody else. So the real question is, what are you teaching yourself? What are you learning? A new study suggests that the average person has 6,200 thoughts a day. Another group study suggests that the average person has 48.6 thoughts per minute. That equates to about 70,000 thoughts per day. They go on and they say this, 80% of those thoughts are negative. So of the 70,000 thoughts that a person has, if you have that many, 80,000 of those thoughts are negative. And then this, 95% of those thoughts are, were the exact same thing that you thought about yesterday. So you have 70,000 thoughts today and you, you had 70,000 yesterday and the week before and the month before and you're thinking about 80% of those are negative and 95% of those are exactly the same thing and so it's a repetitive thought over and over and over and over and you think about the same things every day. What's going to happen if this happens and what's going to happen if that happens and what do I do about this and what do I do about that and it becomes like a worn down path. Listen to me. It's like a worn down path in our mind that has created this, this channel in our mind of negativity or this channel in our mind of, of a lack of trust in God or a lack of thought about God or a lack of dependence upon God. It reminds me, I, I go by this way every single day on 59th and Penn and, and uh, there's, a, there's a gentleman that goes out there every day panhandles and, and uh, the spring comes and the grass turns green and then all of a sudden there's this long swath of dirt. And you know what's happened? The man has done this every single day, back and forth, back and forth and he's worn down a path on that, on that uh, grass there and there's no grass. You know what, that's what, you know, that's exactly what we're doing in life many times. 
We're thinking about the same thing every day. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to get married, or I don't know where am I going to go serve in ministry, or what's going to happen if COVID hits again, or what about this, or what about that? And we've, we've worn out this path. Listen to me, this path in our life and this path in our mind and this path in our heart that has nothing to do with trust in God, nothing to do with dependence upon God. And then we wonder, why, why isn't God listening to me? Why isn't God uh, hearing my cry? Well, you're not even talking to him forevermore. You're not even crying out to God. You're not even trusting him. What are we doing? We're meditating upon our own thoughts and giving thought about what we want and about we, what, we're, what we desire to have in life. And the psalmist says, wait a minute, stop. And he had to come to the place in his life where he, when he had to say, wait a minute. He made a decision. All these baseless worries and these untruths and these fears and these complaints about life and complaints about circumstances and complaints about others and ourselves and God and all these insecurities in my life and losses and regrets and, and irritations and struggles and all of this. My. And the psalmist begins to think and meditate upon God and give thought to God. And give thought to the wonders of God. And give thought to the works of God. In fact, he even asks some questions. He, he, he says this, will the Lord cast off forever? Verse number, verse number uh, seven there. Will the Lord cast off forever? In other words, is he done with me? And, and listen, look, look up here. This is what happens in our life. Questions come into our mind, but the problem is we don't respond with the word of God. And so we might ask ourselves, and, and listen to me, just like the psalmist did, we might ask ourselves, is the Lord done with me? Well, of course not. No, the Lord's not done with you. He says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. No, the Lord's not done with you. Answer and respond with the word of God. And will he be favorable? No more. In other words, has God's favor run out? Of course not. The Bible says the Lord will give grace and glory. Psalm 84, 11, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Is his mercy clean gone forever? Has, in other words, has the compassion of God been exhausted or become bankrupt? Have I come to the place in my life where God is done and, be, and, he's, and he's finished being merciful with me? Bible says, know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them. Psalm 136, 26 verses. One of our young men read it the other day and every single passage says this, for his mercy endureth forever. Doth his promise fail forevermore? No, of course not. God cannot lie. God is not, God has not gone back on his word. We can trust him. We can depend upon him. Isaiah 46, 11, I have spoken it and I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it and I will also do it. And then I love this one. Has God forgotten to be gracious? Well, let me ask you this. Has God forgotten anything? Has God forgotten to be gracious to me? No. If he could forget, he could not be God. Spurgeon said this, shall we speak of him as forgetting when to his mind are all things present and the past and the future are ever before him as a map which lieth open before the beholder's eye? No, of course not. 
There was grace extended to Adam and Eve. There was grace extended to Abraham. There was grace extended to Job. There was grace extended to the kings. There was grace extended to the nation of Israel, to the nations of the world. There's grace extended in the book of the Revelation. Hath he in anger shut up his mercies? Oh, God is not fickle. God does not love one day and hate the next. God is not with you one day and against you another day. No, God is not like that. He, he says, I am the Lord and I change not. God is too loving to be unkind. He's too good to do anything wrong. He's too wise to make any mistakes. He's too great to be petty, spiteful, small, or mean, John Phillips said. Spurgeon says you can carry truth to the ends of the world and it'll always be truth. Heartland Baptist Bible College students, you know what you came here with? Truth. God's going to take care of me. God's going to provide my, my, my school bill. God's going to get me through this semester. God's going to provide. And you know what you brought here? You brought from your home church truth to Southwest Baptist Church and to Heartland Baptist Bible College. And you know what's happened? Truth still remains. God's still going to take care of you. God's still here with you. And you know what's going to happen, graduates, when you walk across the platform on Thursday morning of next week? You carry truth with you as a freshman. You carry truth into your sophomore year. You carry truth into your, your junior year. And you carry truth into your senior year. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to carry truth to the next place that God carries you into ministry. And truth will be truth wherever you go. And truth will be right wherever it is. And God will be true to his word. And God will be right to his word. And you, you can trust him today. And you can trust him tomorrow. And you can trust him next week. Brother John Landy, you can trust him when you go to Sri Lanka. And you can trust him here at Southwest Baptist Church. And you can trust him on the road to deputation. Stephen Trimble, you can trust that God's going to open up the field uh, uh, that you're going to the Philippines. God can do everything be because he's this. He is truth. And you can carry it wherever you go. And the psalmist remembered the wonders of the Lord. He says in verse number 13, he says this, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. When we think of sanctuary, what do we think of? We think of the holiness of God. We think of the righteousness of God. Isn't it amazing when we come to church on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night and we, and we say yes to the preaching, we say yes to the song, and we say yes to the encouragement in, in testimony and whatever the case may be, and we walk away from the sanctuary and it's like God met with us and we heard from God and, and God is good and we walk out the door. And the psalmist said this, he says, Thy way is in the sanctuary. In other words, God always acts according to His holiness. What he is in the sanctuary is what he is out in the parking lot. What he is in your Sunday school class is what he is in your living room. What he is, listen to me, what he is on a church activity when you come together and there's fellowship of the saints is what he is when you're at the workplace. And then he says, who is so great as a God is our God. God is true to himself. Only a wonderful God could do wonders. Only a mighty God could do the mighty. He does the miraculous. He does the marvelous. He does the extraordinary. And he does things too hard to be understood and hard to comprehend. And then look at this in verse number 15. The psalmist said this. Thou hast with thine, thine arm redeemed thy people, the sons of Jacob and Joseph. You say, well, What's the big deal? Jacob, Joseph, those are, those, are, those are people in the Bible. Yes, Jacob was a supplanter. Jacob was a deceiver. 
Jacob was one that was against truth and against, against what was good. In other words, he was always going behind the scene and he was always trying to undermine truth and he was always trying to go, up, go through the back door, the back way. And, and, and the psalmist said this, God, you with your, your arm has redeemed your people, the sons of Jacob. In other words, those that have come behind Jacob and those that are like Jacob, God, you've redeemed them. But then he says this, you've also redeemed Joseph the one that is like Christ, the one that is a picture of Christ, whether, whether it's the greatest of saints or the least of saints, we might say it that way, whether it's uh, the one that is, that is placing great faith in God or the one that is placing little faith in God. The psalmist said this, God, you know what you do? You redeem all of us. You're there with all of us. You, you, you are working on all of our behalf. It doesn't matter. In fact, uh, we, we could even say it this way in verse number 15. I, I saw this this afternoon. Look at, look at this. In, in verse number 14, he says, Thou art the God that doest wonders. Thou hast declared thy strength among the people. Verse number 15, Thou hast with thine arm redeemed thy people. In other words, what he's saying there is this, God, you're good to the nations and you're good to the nation of Israel. <laughs> you, know, you know what that means to me? God is good to my neighbor who is lost and doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, and God is good to the Perkle House. God is good to the peoples of the world, and He's good to the peoples of Oklahoma City. God is good to Southwest Baptist Church, and He's good to those that aren't even in church tonight. Why? Because He's a good God. Why? Because He's the great God. Why? Because this is the God that does wonders. Why? Because this is the God that can do the miraculous. God can accomplish anything that He wants to do. He's good to Jacob and He's good to Joseph. He's good to the people and He's good to thy people. Oh, yes. And His wonder is over the creation. In verse number 16 through verse number 19, the, the Bible basically declares it this way, that the, the weather sees God and responds. <laughs> Look at verse 16. The waters saw thee, O God. The waters saw thee and they were afraid. The depths also were troubled. I, I, think, of the, I think of Jordan and I think of the Red Sea when, when God just looked at the waters and what did it do? The waters saw thee and were afraid and, and they went up. In verses 17 through 19, he talks about the clouds pouring out water and the voice of thunder and the lightnings that were sent abroad. In other words, God has wonder over creation. It's amazing the things that take place in, in that. And he's so wonderful that God moves even when we don't see his steps. Would you look at verse number 19? The psalmist said, thy way is in the sea and thy path in the great waters and thy footsteps are not known. Now I want you to contrast that with verse number 13. Thy way O God is in the sanctuary. Okay? So look up here for just a second. God is at work in the sanctuary. When, when we come to Southwest Baptist Church, what do we see? We see God move. We see God operate. And we're touched by the songs. And we're encouraged by the fellowship. And we're, 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 we're helped by the preaching of the Word of God. And we're, we benefit from the fellowship of the brethren. And we see that. And we, we can observe that. And we can watch God. We can see a young person walk the aisle and get saved. And, and we can literally put hands and, and know, okay, God just, God just saved this first grader. Or God just saved this bus person that came for the very first time. Or God brought this family back together and he reconciled. And we can see it. And we can observe it. And we can, we can picture it in our mind. But, but the psalmist also said this, thy way, O God, is in the sea. The sea? 
don't know if you've ever done any fishing, but there are times that you go fishing and you might see a fish in the water. And you go, there he goes. He's gone. Let's go find him. Okay, well, where's his footsteps? Um, don't see it. Well, where'd he go? I just saw him. What's the matter? Because in the water, you can't trace his steps, can you? And in the water, there are no footsteps that are left. The psalmist said this, thy way, O God, is in the sea. And your footsteps are not known. There's two significant things here that, that I think we ought to take home with us out of this passage here. There's times that we see God work and work and work and work and we rejoice. And then there's other times in life that God does things that we say, where did he go? God, I, I don't see you. God, I, I, can't, I can't trace your steps. I can't, find, I can't find the way that you're operating here because I'm looking and I'm searching and I don't see and I don't hear and I'm not observing. In fact, in fact we can even, we, we can even uh, grasp from this, from this uh, section of Scripture here that he's, he talks about the depths here and he talks about the ocean. Listen, vast. You ever, you ever driven over a lake or you ever driven over an ocean and go, man, that's a lot of water. But that's just the top. That's a lot of water. Yeah, that's just the top. It's deep. It's cavernous. It goes on and on and on. You know what? The ways of God are vast. The movements of God are deeper than we could ever comprehend. The hand of God moves in such a way that, that we can't trace and we may not be able to see and we may not be able to understand. And when you can't listen, when you can't trust what you're seeing and you become fearful and afraid and despondent. And you wonder what has happened to God and you feel alone and afraid. When you can't trust God's way, you can, you can trust his wonders and you can, can trust His works. Why? Because God's always holy. And He's always right. And He's always good. And when you're overwhelmed to the point where life doesn't make sense, and what you're going through doesn't make sense, and you wonder if God's going to deliver, and if you wonder how is God going to put these pieces together, and you can't trust His way, trust His works. Do what the psalmist did. He looked back and he says, God, you were there and you were here and you were there and you were over here. And I may not have seen it all, but I know that you've been wonderful and I know that you've worked and I know that you've worked on the behalf of Jacob and you've worked on the behalf of, of Joseph and God, you've been present all along. I'm sitting down there on my knees, taking those scissors and I'm thinking, My dad doesn't love me. My dad doesn't care about me. 
Look at these kids out here doing, get, they get to do what they want to do and they get to have what they want to have. And here I am working and slaving and, and who knows where my sister is and what's my mom doing. And I'm all, I'm all out here by myself. Then I remember I get to eat at my dad's table. I get to sleep in my dad's house. My dad loves me and he's going to take me fishing later. I didn't think so, but he, he did. And he cared. But the problem was this. I was focused on the shears that was doing the cutting rather than upon the God and my father who loved me dearly. And we get life out of perspective many times, don't we? And oftentimes God has to prick us. God has to put us on our knees. And God has to put us in circumstances where we think we're the only one going through this and we're the only one dealing with this and we're the only one that's having a trial of this kind or of that kind when really we ought to be reminded of this. I get to eat at his table. And I get to drink of his refreshing spirit. And I get to enjoy his presence every single day. And you may be tempted to believe that God has forgotten you tonight. But in reality, it's really this. I failed to remember his goodness to me. Because God hasn't forgotten me. Ironically, we couldn't even question the fatherly love and the fatherly care of God had he not cared for us in the past. Would you think about that for just a second? If we come to the place in our life where we're questioning God's fatherly care, well, how could you question his fatherly care had not God been a father to you? Had not God been good to you? Because God is never preoccupied. God is never rude. God is never too thoughtless. God is never too careless. God is never too disinterested to pay attention to his own. And when you cannot trace his way, Respond by trusting his works and his wonders. His works, that's what he does. His wonders, that's how he does it. God is marvelous in everything that he does. One of my new favorite verses is Psalm 17, 7, where the psalmist said this, Show me thy marvelous loving kindness. And maybe, listen, maybe tonight we just need to get back to the place where we remember God's not trying to hurt me. God's not trying to destroy me. God's not trying to put me in a place where I would run from him. He wants me to run to him, which is exactly what the psalmist did. Oh yeah, he had his moments. In fact, it's very significant here, and I'll close with this, that the the psalmist is Asaph. Asaph is the chief musician to David. He's a man that every day would sing and lead others to sing and give praise to God and give thanks to God and lead the congregation to praise and magnify the Lord. Because you may be here tonight saying, yeah, Brother David, this only happens to me because, well, you know, I'm not, I'm not on staff or I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a Sunday school teacher. No, it happened to 
we would say this to a Floyd Sexnider, to an Aaron Mast, those that would be in a position to lead the congregation to praise him. And here was a man just like that that got to the place in his life where he thought, I'm just going to crawl over here and die because God has forgotten me. And he had to go back and look and say, God hasn't forgotten me. God loves me. God cares for me. And God has not abandoned me. So wherever you are tonight, in whatever circumstance you are, may be in tonight, be reminded of this. When you can't trace His ways, you can trust His works and His wonders. Would you bow with me in prayer tonight and as we have a time of invitation... Father, tonight as we come before you, God, Lord, I know that each and every one of us are prone to doubt. We're prone to be fearful and anxious. We're prone to worry. We're prone to trust ourselves. We're prone to forget the wonderful ways of God. But God, that doesn't change who you are. Doesn't even change your thoughts about us. Doesn't even affect the way that you love us. And so God, tonight, may we, may be we just need to come before God and say, God, forgive me for worrying. Forgive me for not giving proper attention to God. Or maybe we just need to come to God tonight and say, God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, for the way that you've been good to me. Thank you, God, for how you've been good to my family. Thank you, God, that you are not like man, that you should lie. Thank you, God, that you're not like us. But you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. God, thank you that you are God. And God, however you want to work and however you operate in the lives of your people tonight. We'll trust you and we'll thank you in Christ's wonderful name. Amen. Would you stand tonight, number 607.